begun! I, I can't focus unless the gun is on the table. Nothing is normal or natural or everything is game. I'm gonna start a collection of puddings and coupons that can be redeemed for freaking fire miles. We have to get out of this building. They made soup out of my research turtle. See, this is the, the scene of the movie where you help me out. Wow, well, this sequel to 2005's Johnny Cash biopic, Walk the Line, really went went uh, in a different direction than I was expecting. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Wes versus Paul versus Paul versus Predator, the only podcast that I'm aware of about Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Paul W.S. Anderson. My name is Eric Anderson. And my name is Jeremy T. Anderson. <laughs> where's the t where's the t come from i don't know pta paul thomas Anderson. all right yeah. oh there we go yeah. paul yeah i guess yeah there you go uh <laughs> wait are you sure thomas starts with a t um no i'll have to hold on let me confirm googling google yes t it, do, it does in fact start with a t yes okay um so, Jeremy, I had a thought, and I've seen The Master, uh, you know, four or five times at this point. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I, I wanted to bring this up right away because I think it's a pretty original thought um, that I have that I think I might have like a little bit, as someone who's seen this movie many times, like a little bit more a better of a, of a interpretation than, than the average viewer of The Master and, mm-hmm. you know. I, maybe this has been said before, maybe not. Um, I think it's you know, I you know it took me it took me five times to realize this, Jeremy. But I think that the master could be about at least a little bit about Scientology. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> what do you think of that? You know. It's funny you say that because to me the movie becomes less and less about Scientology the more I watch it. But, I know, but it is, but it is in its core DNA, sort of about L. Ron Hubbard specifically. I know. I just remember I'm making fun of the like hype around it when the when the film came out. I remember people being like, after I saw it, I, I remember people being like, "Ooh, this movie like." Is like I think it's like a kind of about Scientology. It's like yeah, obviously it is. It's like it's it's so obviously. Uh, uh, you're right though. It's not. I don't think the movie is about Scientology, but I do think that it. You know, clearly. You yeah, know, there's. I remember comparisons when, to when be he made. Was getting interviewed about about the next project he was going to make, and he straight up would say in interviews like, "Yeah, I'm making a movie about Scientology." Making it about like the beginning of Scientology. It's going to be like about Erwan Hubbard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Jeremy, real quick, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. Uh, we're doing, you know, we're doing an episode on some of the Wes Anderson, uh, commercials, the, the Prada shorts. Uh, that's going to be, that's going to be a fun conversation. We, uh, did an episode on whether or not 2021 will be a good year for movies. <laughs> and what do we come so, down on again? Do we come on, I think, down on a yes or Well, no? you know what? You'll have to listen and find out, Jeremy. <laughs> I'll have to re-listen to remind myself. <laughs> yeah, and you will have to pay the five dollars. Um, I changed the password uh, to Patreon and locked you out. So, uh, banned your IP IP address as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, hope that's okay. Yeah. That's uh, fine. So, <laughs> and I added Brian. Brian is now. Uh, Brian now receives fifty uh, percent of our Patreon revenue. 
As he should. He's basically working for us round the clock, trying to get us new patrons. Uh, has it worked? Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll find out. Jeremy, uh, you know, so we're doing we're doing fun stuff over there on the Patreon. Basically, we do an episode a week that's like a little bit more relaxed. We let we let people uh, we let the listeners, the subscribers, tell us what to do, and uh, boy, do they tell us what to do! And it's a, it's a good time. We do we do uh, we we got we got different tiers going on over there, and I'm not talking about crying, although I feel like one of us is cried at least once on the patreon yeah i've definitely cried um doing one of those paul ws anderson movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 i cried during the uh um small soldiers episode i guess that was a uh, that was a regular feed episode but um so the anyway patreon.com slash eric and jeremy <laughs> we got a lot to talk about with the master if you're new to the podcast we we you know we we kind of go around one by one, and we're going through the films of PTA and Wes Anderson and Paul W.S. Anderson, unfortunately. And today is a PTA episode, and this is a big one, Jeremy. Yeah, I think, this is the uh, PTA episode, I would say. Last week, uh, the, or the last PTA episode we did was also the PTA episode. Maybe every one of his movies is the PTA episode. Maybe he, uh, That's just the kind of director he is. Every movie feels like, oh, this could be his last movie. <laughs> If I remember correctly, I think um, at the beginning of this whole thing, you had said that The Master is your first or second favorite PTA film. Or I, am I, am I, wrong I, I think that The Master, and here's just a little spoiler for later. I To me, I rank it just barely below There Will Be Blood. But I think that to, they make a very compelling one-two punch back-to-back. Like This might be yeah. my favorite of all time back-to-back films from a director like this is just like i I mean can you even believe it it was like five years later he makes (laughs) he makes this together they 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 make like kind of a kind of one of those like all-time great like you know murderer's row of like films in a in a in a in a director's filmography maybe kubrick had some pretty good ones back to back since all of his are like genius masterpieces but um but yeah i i think i think for me the master is and honestly i at certain points in my life the master has been my favorite of his movies um as it currently stands i think there'll be blood still is and the master is a close second but what about you what was your history with this movie yeah, this is the I got really into PTA. Um, I you know I I got really into um, not really. I loved Punch Drunk, but I like didn't really like. I wasn't like I didn't co- even think I connected that he was the guy who did Boogie Nights. Right. Um. Until uh, there will be blood, and then I was like, oh, this guy directed Punch Drunk, which I think is a really weird, cool movie, and um. Then, so the master is the first uh, and only uh, of two PTA movies that I've seen in the movie theater. Um, I think I went opening weekend to the master, and I talk about this. I I say this a lot. I've been saying this about PTA movies, uh, but it is one of those movies where I saw it in the middle. I remember it was a Saturday afternoon, and afterwards I was like, well... 
<laughs> there's still like a day, like half of a day left that I have to like try deal, and deal with that. Deal yeah. with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I you know I loved this movie uh, when I first saw it, but I also didn't really know like what to make of it, and um, I I guess I still like we'll talk about it at the at the end. I'm excited to hear your interpretation because I still after seeing this movie for like five five times now i think mm. i i still like if you ask me what this movie is about i could give you an answer but it would be it's probably going to be very rambly and you know <laughs> maybe even like me trying to disguise the fact that i kind of don't know what this movie is about and i it's interesting i was watching earlier today i was watching um an interview with uh paul thomas anderson for inherent vice and um, which we'll be talking about in a couple weeks. And the interviewer asked, you know, I forget what the question was, but it was basically, you know, prompting PTA to answer, like, what, say what he thinks the inherent vice is about. And he prefaced what he said with, I guess. Like, almost in a way of, like, he doesn't even really kind of no and i think that that's i think that that's okay i had um i i drank a lot of coffee and went on a long drive yesterday morning mm. I, I i went skiing jeremy so i was oh. like up early and i was i was drinking coffee in the car and i was thinking about um something that i'll talk more about on our bonus episode but um oh, nice. i was thinking about like david lynch and pta and um the sort of like there's so, there's these directors where people really read into their work mm-hmm. and they really are like searching for an answer about like what was the master about what is what's the point of Mulholland Drive like what what are these things about and I think there's something to be said about just like the subconscious like intuition when you're creating something mm-hmm. and also intuition when you're just like watching something. Like I think it yeah. like like uh, almost it's more of like some of these. It's okay to just like have a feeling about something, yeah. Like a, a piece of art than to just have like an answer for when someone says, "What do you think that was about?" Because mm-hmm. when you're making something, you know, we've both made different things, and <laughs> there's at a certain point, like uh, I was thinking about this with songwriting, where it's like, where do you start? with writing a song like no one ask like any songwriter how they write a song and it's completely different and at a certain point you just have to make choices and sometimes you like you like write a lyric or something or you write some dialogue and you're like oh i'll go back and change that with something better later but then that thing like becomes part of it and then maybe it stays or maybe you switch it out and you just have to like make these choices and i feel like PTA and David Lynch are these guys that like they just have like a vision and yeah. they don't e- they don't need to like explain themselves and uh I don't know it, it's cuz I'm someone who really likes to read message boards and hear about different people's interpretations and I was like I I kind of don't really want to do that with the master cuz I feel like this movie what my own interpretation of it and how it makes me feel keeps me coming back to it. And I don't want anyone to like ruin that. Uh, (laughs) And I don't know, it's kind of a long tangent, but I was like thinking about this, like on a drive yesterday, I was like, it kind of, 
I, I kind of want to start watching things without like thinking as deeply about them. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like you want them to wash over you as opposed to yeah. kind of understanding every little facet about them. And that's what I that's what I tried to do with the master. That's gotcha. what I was like, you know, this morning I could do a bunch of, you know, I could read what the weirdos on Reddit are saying that right. this movie is about. But Well, let me ask um, you this. Are you yeah. still are you still comfortable engaging in that kind of dialogue though? So maybe at the end I of this am. episode we can kind of talk about what we think it's about. Yes. Cuz I still think I still enjoy you know, conversation about it. I think that I agree with you that I don't love like I still haven't watched that five hour long Twin Peaks the Return breakdown. Yeah. Because I I there's part of me that is like I, w- I watched an interview with David Lynch recently. This is so funny you bring this up because it's uh I mean we used to be a David Lynch podcast. I guess it's not too crazy that we both <laughs> had thought about David Lynch in the same week, but um I, I watched an interview with him where he talked a lot about like how his films always have a story. And he's right. Mm-hmm. They, he's like, they always have a story. He's like, but there's a lot of other stuff that happens around the edges of my films that are sort of like inconsistent or flavor or just like things that just happen. And he's like, that's kind of like life. Like life isn't like a linear story. <laughs> like life is like inconsistent. Like weird things happen along the fringes and edges of your hero's journey. So, you know, like I think about in The Return you have the mentally handicapped guy and he's like, and he's like, uh, and he's like in his house right after he's like run through a wall and he's like tied Mm -hmm. and he's like now tied to a chair. Like, so he can't like run anymore. And it's that scene where like Richard breaks into the house and he's just like, but when you first get there, he's just like watching this toy bear with like a big light bulb for a head. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's stuff like that, that David Lynch just sort of puts in his, in his, in his work that, like, I don't really want to know if that represents something. There's something about right. that where I'm like, that image is just so powerful to me and it's so interesting. And I can kind of decide for myself what I think that might be or how that makes me feel. Because I think you're right. How a film makes you feel is more important than what it is technically yeah. about from the creator's point of view. Because I think also David Lynch and PTA and Kubrick was like this too. They were smart enough to make films that didn't have clear this is what they are about. They made films that people could go to coffee shops afterwards and discuss. That's what makes them good. That's what they have over Spielberg. Spielberg is a director who's amazing, but he but you know what his movies are about. He tells you what they're about during the movie. Uh, you know, someone like Terry Gilliam or David Lynch or or Stanley Kubrick you know, they don't hold your hand. They want you to decide what you think the movie's about. And I think that's way more compelling. I was watching a movie last night called Wendy. Uh, it's a very, it's an excellent film on uh, on HBO Max. And it's uh, the follow-up to the director who made uh, Beasts of the Southern Wild. And man, mm. I, it, it was so good. Man, I was like, I was crying in it. I Like, I was like, I had tears coming down my face. It was about childhood and growing up and... And uh, it was kind of like a, it was like a reimagining of the Peter Pan story, but with like unhoused children. It was like really good, and I was like feeling all kinds of stuff. And there's a lot of confusing things that happen. Like the rules of that film are not clear. Like it's half fantasy, half very grounded reality. And uh, yeah, I ain't, you you bet your you bet your ass I ain't gonna look that movie up. 
I don't. Right. I, I just want to. I just want to feel all those feelings I felt. You know. Um, now there are cool stuff. I think, like in Magnolia, for example, like all that stuff PTA hid throughout the movie. Like that's really cool stuff right. that I want to know about, like Easter eggs and like production history and stuff. But as far as like what the master is about, I think it's probably about a lot of stuff. Right. You know, and I and I think every scene is kind of about its own thing, in a way. Um, so I'm really excited to get into it. This is a, also this has got a lot of pre 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 plot discussion stuff. So uh, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. So I guess uh, to clarify, I'm not I'm not done analyzing films. I I love you know talking about these movies afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Think I just that. like. My, uh, like, I, 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 I'm just done, like, trying to, like, I'm going to spend less energy trying to, like, find meaning in, like, more challenging movies, because I think that's not, sometimes they're more simple than I think I try and make them out to be, or, you know, um, so yeah, uh, Anyway, the master is. Uh, when did that? When did this movie came out? Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. The end of the Mayan calendar. Oh yeah, I yeah. can't believe the world is over. By the way, have you, yeah. do you believe it's been you know eight, eight years eight since years the world since ended? The world ended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, Were you at all convinced that the world was going to end? No, not a, not even a little bit. But that remember that disaster movie did come out, two thousand twelve, about the end of the world. Do you remember that? No, that's yeah. Sounds... There's, a, there's a disaster movie called 2012. It's about end of the Mayan calendar. I wonder now. I'm curious. Did that movie come out in 2012? Film. It came out in 2009. <laughs> that's better. I like it when it comes out uh, before. So so it's like maybe it'll happen. Yeah, it's got it's got a John Cusack in it. Um, <laughs> I. <laughs> Uh yeah, I'll probably I'm probably not gonna watch that. No, you uh, got to you know, watch it. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, the master. So I uh, yeah, the, like you said, this is the follow up to um there will be blood. Um, I think there will be blood was a movie that like when it came out, like people liked it, but I th- definitely for me, I didn't see it when it came out, and I remember like there was a buzz about it afterwards. Like I was, ju- I was like just out of high school mm-hmm. um so my friends and i were kind of getting into like you know uh more like sophisticated uh cinema and art and stuff right. uh and i remember like the buzz kind of building up around there will be blood like there was like a couple years there where people were like oh have you seen there will be blood like every time you know films uh came up in conversation right yeah i will say that um there'll be blood was my like favorite movie when it came out. I I was, I was obsessed with there'll be blood. I loved there will be blood. I still love there will be blood. And then this movie came out and I saw this in theaters. Also there'll be blood was my first PTA in theaters. Master was obviously my second. And, uh, I, uh, this movie made me feel all kinds of things and I didn't know what they were. And I was like, I didn't know what to do with the master. There'll be blood. I had a better idea of what to do with it because it felt like a Kubrick movie. This movie, yeah. this movie is is definitely feels less like a Kubrick movie and much more like a PTA movie. Um, yeah. 
Um, so Jeremy, did you know that during the jail cell scene, Joaquin Phoenix breaks a real toilet? Yeah, and it's and isn't it like a um, it that was like a historical. He breaks like an old toilet, right? And it, okay. it, doesn't it cost them like a lot of money to replace? Uh, yeah, it says his actions were entirely improvised. Due to the historical past of the building where the scene took place, oh. the toilet was considered historical. Joaquin had no intentions to break it. I was just like, uh, you know, I, w- I was terrified for Freddie Quell in this because he doesn't have a toilet. He's mm-hmm. now like... What, yeah. a dumb, <laughs> what a dumb, <laughs> what a dumb fit of rage. Yeah. Also, um, I, I always get nervous when people break real glass. Like, I knew that that was real porcelain, and I was like, is his feet okay? Like, he just broke that toilet. I wonder if he cut his foot. But that's always... Yeah. That's neither here nor there. That's a great scene, by the way. We'll talk about that scene later, but that's a great scene. So let's let's talk about Joaquin Phoenix for a second because yes. he's at this point he had done he you know he kind of got like mainstream uh, success from Walk the Line and before that uh, he he uh, he I think I think it was got pretty mainstream success from Gladiator I don't know if right. you remember Gladiator. oh yeah yeah yes I guess Walk the Line is when he came into like my uh i guess consciousness or yes that's the same for me but but even then to me he wasn't like a cool actor that i was excited about like the projects that he was gonna do like to me walk the line was a movie like my sisters liked so uh and i don't think it's a bad movie but i definitely wasn't like oh i can't wait for joaquin phoenix to do another movie yeah so but so when he uh popped in this paul thomas anderson movie I was, I'm glad you brought this up. This legitimized Joaquin Phoenix in my mind. This made me think, okay, there's something special about him. Like he's, you know, obviously Paul Thomas Anderson, my favorite director of all time, <laughs> likes him. So maybe I need to maybe I need to pay more close attention to him. And he's right because Joaquin Phoenix is he's something else in this movie. Um, yeah, so, and that, and at this time, so 2012, I was looking up that the I'm Still Here, the weird, when uh, Joaquin Phoenix did that whole, uh, I guess, mockumentary where right. uh, he is, like, pretending to become a hip-hop uh, star or musician or something. I don't remember what the whole shtick of it was. I remember his, like, awkward sort of, like, late-night appearance uh, right. I think on Letterman and um, yeah, you know, he, he kind of went from t- t- my perception of him was like, Oh, he's like this really good actor who did like really a really good Johnny cash uh, and, you know, got all this praise for that. And now he's like, it turns out he's like a weirdo and he's like doing like this weird, like stunt that I didn't really like get, I did watch that mockumentary back too, in the day, yeah. but I, ne- I never really like got, got it and it's a casey affleck movie too which is also a weird part of that where it's like i don't know what they were doing like what they what are they what were they trying to do it seemed like they were like making it was supposed to be a comedy yeah but it wasn't very funny it it wasn't like he wasn't being very funny in those interviews it was like cringy I yeah so I I'll say I I really like Joaquin Phoenix um I'm excited to talk about Inherent Vice because I have some thoughts about uh his performance 
in that. I think he's just generally like just a top notch actor, just like really, really fun to watch, but also like just so weird. He can be so uh, like uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I, as a person, I think that I, I he's one of those people where I'm like, I, I don't really want to know much. I don't want to like see interviews with him. I don't want to know much about him. Cause I feel like, so I, I saw the, um, I think it's called Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Yeah, I saw the, that too. Is that the Gus, is that Gus Van Zandt? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where he's in a um, wheelchair. I saw a screening of that at the Cinerama Dome with, and Gus Van Zandt and Joaquin Phoenix did a little Q&A oh, afterwards. Oh, you're lucky. That sounds great. It was really interesting, but Joaquin Phoenix was doing, um, I don't, if he was doing this as a joke, uh, nobody, like, thought it was funny and and it was very uncomfortable but he kept like he like wouldn't answer quite this was in like a huge this is a huge uh you know movie theater in la and it was packed and he like wouldn't like hold the microphone to his mouth to answer questions and like i remember the interviewer had to like keep telling him to like talk into the microphone and it seemed like he was like being difficult for like or like didn't care about what was happening it was very like weird i couldn't tell like maybe he's doing a shtick maybe he's just a weird guy but i got like not a great i don't know like impression of him and i guess that that was just one experience but i that that is kind of like my one um that and the awkward letterman interview are like my only impressions of like oh what is this guy like in real life <laughs> and I yeah. think I don't want to know. I don't really want to know. Yeah, he seems like um, definitely troubled. Now, now he and he comes from. Uh, I, I we we don't want to call it Hollywood royalty, but him and his like he his brother River Phoenix mm, yeah. was a uh, was like on fire and then died in a horrible way. And I've always kind of thought I wonder. Like how how f-ed up Joaquin Phoenix is as not not only being a child actor because Joaquin Phoenix was also a child actor and that's got to do something weird to you but also his brother oh, yeah. died in an insane way. Um, I know that he chain smokes like he smokes like an absolute fiend, and mm. uh, and yeah, there's just like a lot of a lot of weird stuff around the edges of Joaquin Phoenix like. Um, he's always awkward and uncomfortable interviews. He kind of acts like Freddie Quell in real life, I feel <laughs> like. And uh, and yeah, there's a story too. I don't know. Do you remember the Werner Herzog story about saving him from a burning car? No. Yeah, apparently uh, Werner Herzog was driving and there was a, he, he ran in, he like saw a car flipped over on its, mm-hmm. on its, on its roof. And there was a person inside, and he ran up to the car, and it was Joaquin Phoenix trying to light Whoa. a cigarette upside down in a burning car. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Werner Herzog had to pull him out of the car. Yeah, but hmm. and and it's like, you know, Werner Herzog is also a, a guy who's known to tell tall tales, you know? So it's like, I wonder if that's even true. But it kind of just feels true, you know? It's like, it's like an interest. He's an interesting person i do wish that he was cooler like joaquin phoenix was like seems like kind of a jerk like and that's and that sucks and also there was that stuff that came out when the joker came out where like todd phillips like sent a like sent the jimmy kimmel show like some footage of joaquin phoenix like really like yelling at like one of the production people 
on set. And I think he did it as a joke to show like, to like make fun of Joaquin or like, I don't just rib him a little bit, but it came off like really terrible. Hmm. Like Joaquin, like it's, it's one of the most uncomfortable interviews where like Jimmy Kimmel's like, wow, it seems like you're getting upset there. And then Joaquin gets really awkward and he's like, yeah, sometimes when you're making stuff, you're just so into it that you kind of forget, you know, who's around. It was like, it was like really strange. Um, yeah, it's a really, really, really strange stuff uh, with Joaquin. So I agree with you. Yeah, he definitely, I definitely get a bad vibe from him. But I do, I do appreciate his work. I think he's a really fantastic actor. I also forgot to, to mention Signs. Signs was another movie. Oh yeah, that, uh, yeah. He's in that. I think he's great. And uh, The Village also, uh, two M Night Shyamalan movies back to back. He's really good in. Um. Yeah. So. Uh. Let's see. There was something else I wanted to talk about. Okay, so Phoenix did a lot of improvisation, it sounds like, on set. Um, He lost significant weight for the role. Uh, And uh, this is interesting. So his parents, uh, they were in, what was the name of the cult? I just lost it. Oh, his parents escaped from the uh, Children of God cult in the 1970s. Um, So I wonder if he was... I wonder if he, if that, I mean, I'm sure it affected him, but I wonder if that influenced his performance at all. Um, uh, yeah, I, won- I wonder if hit, I wonder if that ever came up or if he ever talked to his parents about that, like to prepare for the role. Um, this movie very much is about mind control and cults and mm-hmm. how to sort of subjugate human beings and and like little tips and tricks and ways of like kind of gaslighting people and making them kind of go insane. It's really Mm -hmm. interesting. It's got a really, it's it's got a really interesting core here. And I I wonder if like, I wonder if even a lot of the things that were done in the movie have been used by Scientology or how much of them are just made up, you know, like the the, the idea of like having him walk back and forth in a room. Mm-hmm. Like that, I'm wondering. I'm like, I'm like, did they make that up for the movie? Because it like, it was a compelling image to see him doing that, or is it like part of a cult? Like, did has a cult used that tactic before to like make some, break somebody? Um. So, as far as uh, uh uh okay, Anderson compared Phoenix's commitment to that of Daniel Day Lewis for his level of concentration, saying mm-hmm. that Phoenix got into character, it stayed there for three months. Um, yeah, he definitely seems like a guy who, God, I can't imagine what he was like to hang around with when he was shooting the Joker. Yeah, um, no movie. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. So this is the first film, a uh, fiction film, Jeremy, to be shot in 65 millimeter since Kenneth Brana, 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 Brainag. Rana's Hamlet yeah, in 1996. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's also uh, this is also the only of Paul Thomas's and Paul Thomas Anderson's movies to be uh, distributed by the Weinstein Company. 
So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is, is a, I think he's a new line guy. He's not a Miramax guy. That's important to okay. remember. I think there was, there's specifically reasons for that. Like, I think Paul Thomas Anderson has gone on record saying that Harvey Weinstein creeped him out. He didn't like Harvey Weinstein. Okay. He didn't want to work with him. But the Weinstein company had access to the 70 millimeter. Like, they, they were able to get this in 70 millimeter theaters. And they mm. helped a lot in that in that process, and that's kind of a key to the master. Is is this this film needs to be seen in seventy millimeter? It needs to be big because it was shot in so, sixty five. It needs to be big. Um. Yes, I remember the screening that I went. To. I can't remember where I was. Where would I have been physically in this point in time? I can't remember, but I remember seeing uh, this in seventy millimeter. Because I remember it it was probably like one of the first movies I'd seen or at least was aware of like, oh, this is like a a 70 millimeter screening of of a movie. It was a bit it was a big deal. But um, speaking of, uh, you know, 70 millimeter screenings, Jeremy, this sounds like a great time to me. Paul Thomas Anderson premiered the film in a surprise 70 millimeter screening at the American Cinematheque in Los Angeles. Uh, in August of 2012, following a 4K restoration of the of The Shining, uh, almost a full month before the ir- official world premiere at the Venice Film Festival, yeah. Can you imagine a better night out at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those in attendance were told before the start of The Shining that there would be a special free screening after the film, but did not reveal that the screening would be a world premiere of this film. Uh, that's actually that's kind of insane too to like watch The Shining and then this. That's that's a wild. That's a double feature that will uh, maybe make it difficult to sleep <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's just a lot of like psychological content <laughs> yeah. to process. Um, do you remember the trailers for The Master, Jeremy? I do. Yeah, I love them. I, I thought I thought they were really great, really compelling. And of course, you have uh, Greenwood's brilliant score kind of coming oh, yeah. through. Um, the trailers were edited by PTA without permission from the studio. Notable for consisting mostly of footage not featured in the final cut. Uh, this is Seymour Hoffman's fourth and final Oscar nomination. Yeah. Um, and it's a bummer. Yeah. Like, I don't know who won this year. But God, he should—he <laughs> should have—he should have won for sure. Uh, I don't even care who it is. Yeah. So the yeah, I I, I feel like this film could have easily won won uh, best picture. Uh, both Hoffman, I think actually all three Hoffman, Joaquin, and Amy Adams all could have won awards for oh, this yeah. film and i think that uh greenwood could have won for score mm-hmm. uh very easily um i'm gonna look up oscars you know, 2012 just to see just to see speaking what of uh speaking of amy adams while you do that uh adams stated that anderson would have her appear on set for scenes she was not scheduled to appear in to make her presence felt uh and at times she didn't know whether the camera was on her yeah that's cool. It's kind of interesting. Like yeah. That. So, so the winners of 2012, just so we all know, are um, well. Actually, let's see. The release date was later, so this would have been Oscars 2013. It wouldn't have been eligible for the 2012 Oscars. 
Let me see. Yeah, so it's Lincoln. <laughs> oh man, Lincoln. I remember being yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is the year that uh that, that, that Argo year. won Best Picture. Great. And Jennifer Lawrence won Best Actress and Daniel Day Lewis won Best Actor. I don't mind Daniel Day Lewis winning for Lincoln, but Argo as Best Picture, that movie, give me a break. <laughs> no, no one cares about Argo anymore. Yeah, um, no one cares about Argo. No, thank you. Uh, Lincoln is all right. I think it's well fine, done. but that I mean that just won Best Actor. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, I do like her in Silver Linings Playbook. I don't mind that she won. That's that's. Oh cool. yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that movie. But uh, um, yeah, the I I Argo. I mean. <sighs> I don't even think I don't know if the master would have even been the second choice of the Oscars that year, but uh, it was definitely it definitely was is my favorite movie of this year. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy, uh, are there any pieces of trivia you wanted to get to before we dive into the the plot? Um. Yeah, I guess just that. Like, okay, so this is a this movie is produced by Annapurna pictures mm-hmm. uh it's in uh, according to wikipedia the film's inspirations are varied it was partly inspired by scientology founder l ron hubbard as well as early drafts of anderson's there will be blood the novel v by thomas pinchon drunken navy stories that jason robards had told to anderson when he was terminally ill while filming magnolia and the life story of author john steinbeck <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of things that this movie is based on yeah I, I think that's kind of cool. I like it that. is cool. Yeah, this movie is uh, also um, like most of. Unfortunately, like most of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, uh, loses millions of dollars at the box office. So it's a Great. budget of thirty-two million dollars, and it comes in at around twenty-eight million. So, um, so Jeremy, uh, which is about what we pull in for Patreon. Uh, it's close. Yearly. Yeah, it's yeah. very close. Pretty close. Uh, Freddie Quell is a traumatized World War II veteran, uh, struggling to adjust to post-war society and prone to violent and erratic behavior. Um, this is something that I always kind of forget about his character, is he is a traumatized war veteran. Um, every time I watch this, for some reason, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, oh, right, he was like, that's partially, at least partially why he is the way he is, is very traumatized from the events of WW2. Yeah, there's all that stuff at the beginning about WW2. Um yeah. and like and like he's like he's like literally talking to what do we, who do we think those guys are with the holding up the ink blots and stuff? Are they like they're like they're like licensed maybe like psychologists i mean like what is that is that what we're led to believe that like this is like the the navy's psychology i think so yeah yeah um yeah so he works as a photographer in a department store but is fired after getting into a fight with a customer um yeah he also uh yeah it's crazy so the, the then the California farm thing happens later. Sorry, I'm catching up with the Wikipedia. Yeah, so yeah, then he also accidentally kills somebody by feeding him homemade moonshine. <laughs> yeah, so we find out that Freddy is not only just like uh, wildly alcoholic, but he is also uh, apparently has a skill for crafting moonshine out of 
whatever's around basically yeah. oh yeah and like and like when he's working in the department store he's like using what i assume are like chemicals to like restore photographs <laughs> like chemicals from like the red room in a in a photography or the dark room in a photography lab to like make moonshine it cannot yeah. be healthy <laughs> no uh it is definitely not keto jeremy no not keto um, he's also really like we, we also know from the right away that he is and this is very important to the film he is like a sex maniac he is like yeah. sex starved it's like he's also it's not like he's like not able to have sex either like he's actually having sex a lot with women but he's also still very obsessed with it and like uh like he like humps and gets horny for the sand sculptures of women <laughs> yeah it's really like it's 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 off-putting it's it's very it's 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 pretty uncomfortable in the way uh we'll see like later on the way he sort of i don't know i guess i guess um comes on to women uh is not good um he's he's uh so i i guess i want to know something that i'm curious about jeremy is how much of like freddie's character the way he is comes from being a veteran and how much of it do you think is just the way he is as a person i think the film wants you to not i, I don't think the film wants to 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 answer that question you know what i mean like i think the film wants yeah. uh wants you to think you know i want i wants you to ask the question what makes a man like what what mm. causes quote unquote you know like the cause what causes a man what is the causation for Freddie Quell to be the way that he is I think they also are they're also trying to illustrate or paint a portrait of somebody who's complete id right like in, there's a lot there's a and, and this is maybe getting too far ahead of, of the of the conversation but there's like a reading of this film where uh freddie quell and lancaster dot are the same person like they're just two sides of the same coin right like one is just the super ego and one is the id like one is like the brain one's the body one's like freddie quell is very much like the all the things that make us an animal right that connect us mm -hmm. with our like animal instincts he's like drinking and, and fighting and he's violent and and uh, he farts a lot <laughs> yeah. in the movie, yeah. and and Lancaster Dodd is like this very put together, um, like buttoned up, uh, into super hyper intellectual guy, uh, very manipulative, you know. And uh, the whole film they're referencing like the that perhaps they have met before, and um, right. one of my interpretations, one of my readings of the film is that they are actually the same person and that this is actually a complete portrait of what L. Ron Hubbard was, which was like, hmm. he's both. He's both an intellectual and a complete psycho, <laughs> like a complete yeah. like um, masturbating weirdo. But like, you know, I think if we're just taking it, you know, without reading too much into it, I think Freddie is like, He's been he's probably traumatized from his time at World War Two in, in World War Two. But not everybody who came back from, from World War Two acts like Freddie Quell does. So he might just also have some mental he might also just have mental issues. Yeah. Um Yeah, that's a good point. I like that uh I like your uh, the the I, I like your read of those two together and the them combined being maybe a 
portrayal of L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, I think that's interesting. Um, I think we might have like a similar interpretation of the film. I'm I'm excited to hear what you the conversation at the end. But um, so Freddie flees after he's accused of poisoning the guy with moonshine. Um, yeah. One night, Freddie finds himself in San Francisco and stows away on the yacht of a follower of Lancaster Dodd. Uh, the leader of a nascent uh, philosophical movement called uh, The Cause. When he is discovered, Dodd describes Freddy as aberrated and claims he has met uh, him in the past but cannot remember where. It's very Twin Peaksy. I don't know why. Yeah. I get a, I get a kind of a strange. Twin Peaks vibe from, from them. This whole idea of like having met before. Um, he invites Freddie to stay and attend the marriage of his daughter, Elizabeth, as long as he will make more moonshine, which Dodd has developed a taste for. <laughs> so Dodd, we find out, is also uh, maybe like a bit more functioning, but still an alcoholic. He's huge um, alcoholic, loves uh, Freddie's moonshine. Um, it's very, they, they're very connected by, by that. Uh, her husband, by the way, Elizabeth's husband, played by the great Rami Malek. Uh, this film yeah. has two or three uh, members of the cast that like they don't really use that much, but are like absolutely Oscar people. Like Laura Dern is in this movie and she's like... Plemons. Yeah, Pl- Jesse Plemons, who I don't think he has an o- Oscar, but he will win an Oscar in his life. Yeah. I-, I-, I have a feeling. Did you also see in the cast that Fiona Dorif is in this movie? No. Brad Dorif's daughter, Fiona. Star of... Uh, of uh, What was it? Which Child's Play movie was that? Uh, Cult of Chucky? Yeah, Cult of Chucky. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's in this too. Um, so let's see. Dodd begins an exercise with Freddy called processing, in which, which by the way, I was thinking it'd be fun if if I processed you. Uh, yeah, we should do that episode. as a bonus show. <laughs> <laughs> in which he asks Freddy a flurry of disturbing psychological questions. Uh, during the exercise, Freddy reveals details of his past, including his father's death, his mother's incarceration in a mental asylum, um, and his incestuous sexual encounters with his aunt. Uh, he also has a flashback to a past relationship with Doris, a young woman from his hometown, whom Freddie promised he would uh, return to. I think uh, this is also sort of in line. Like this, that movie Joker borrows a lot of this stuff, I think. <laughs> like his character is very similar in both films and mm-hmm. and like this whole idea of like mom being in a mental asylum. You know what I mean? Like it just is like this is also a a kind of Joker's origin story. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, I mean we it, we get a lot of sort of like heavy traumatizing, you know, information about him up top. Um I don't know, like he's it's Do you feel like sympathetic to uh to quell at all during the movie? Um, it's hard to because I know he doesn't yeah, seem, yeah, yeah, he, because Quell also beyond just like, I feel bad for Quell in a way, but in another way, he seems very dangerous. Like he seems like somebody who's like truly out for their own good. 
Like, there's a scene later on when, like, Rami Malek is telling Dodd, like, he's trying to get a hold of your old manuscript so he can just sell them. <laughs> like, he just wants to, like, have money. How Like, he's always just looking out for number one. And that's... And, yeah. that, and that makes him... Like, for as much time as we spend with him in this movie, it makes him a bit of an anti-hero. Like, I kind of don't like Freddie Quell. Oh, yeah. Me neither. Um, yeah, I feel like I am more sympathetic. Like, I feel worse for Dodd, almost. Like, I sympathize with Dodd because, like, I, I mean, I don't uh, identify with his character, but I think, like, man, that sucks that this guy, like, has put has like because of you know his ideas and and uh it it sucks that this guy has like put himself in this position where he thinks he's like god basically oh um yeah, you think yeah you feel bad for for him doing that yeah i just feel i just feel bad for him that he has this personality where he thinks he has to be like the leader of a cult. You know what I mean? Where he think he's someone who think who needs to have uh you know this this following or well, whatever. Let's, let's talk about Dodd for a second. And I mean maybe this it extends to just a bigger conversation about L. Ron Hubbard. But do you do we think based on his performance, do we think that Dodd believes his own te- his own teachings? Because I kind of get the sense he does in a weird way. Like, is there is is he just a con artist or do we think that he's sort of uh, drinking his own Kool-Aid? That's a good question. Um, I think maybe it's a little bit of both. I don't know. Yeah, it um, seems like maybe it might have started out as a con, but then... And then he... Yeah, started drinking his own Kool Aid. He like started you said. buying yeah. into the whole his whole weirdo weirdoness of it. I also think there's something about processing that's probably very powerful, and I think that's why Scientology is is as popular as it is. Because uh, I don't know if they call it processing in Scientology. They call it something though, right? Auditing, auditing, and it's mm-hmm. where and it's it is a similar thing where you're like asked several questions in a row over and over, almost like. In a, in a weird way, like, reverse conditions you into, like, having memories sometimes that you weren't even a part of. Um, yeah. Or just remembering things that are really, like, locked up behind a lot of walls of trauma and stuff. I think there's some there's got to be some scientific, psychological thing that's happening there during processing. Um like the whole like not blinking thing for example i mean you make somebody do something long enough too and they're like they're gonna you're gonna break them psychologically Mm -hmm. but i i just i just wonder like is this a case of like they stumbled onto some sort of psychological breakthrough process and then they just took it in a in the wrong direction or is it all just bullshit you know what i mean like no, obviously they're not the 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 they're, they are a cult. None of this is mm-hmm. real. But is are parts of it psychologically beneficial or helpful? 
it's it's something the movie obviously doesn't make very clear and i'm glad they don't i'm just it just these are the questions i'm asking myself when i'm watching it i'm like this seems like it works for some people <laughs> like freddie seems yeah. to have a breakthrough in the movie and it seems to be pretty genuine um but uh but then you think about Dodd and it, and then, you know, other cult leaders. And it, like they, I think other cult leaders also buy into their own bullshit, too. So I'm, I'm wondering if Dodd is just also a victim of his own con artistry. Right. And then I think, you know, whether his intention was to become like a cult leader, I think at a certain point, it seems like, I mean, he really... You could like with Seymour Hoffman's performance when he like when he's addressing like his followers, um, you could tell he really likes being this yeah. kind of you know godlike figure. Like he really likes being the leader mm-hmm. of whatever this of the cause and whatever whatever it is they're doing. Um, and yeah, I think you know over time that's he's just going to want more and more. Um, and I think part of like why he, I guess like this movie to me is like, uh, um, you know, he finds Freddie, uh, this guy who I, I, I think he like, obviously he, he wants Freddie's, you know, like moonshine and maybe there's like sort of a, like camaraderie they have with one another. Like we see them later, like, when they reunite, they like wrestle on the ground like they're yeah. you know little kids. He and, tears and his pants off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and what I love about this movie, what I really like about um, sort of what we see unfold is uh, Dodd finds this Freddie who is like an alcoholic who's like damaged from world war two and is like a little bit aloof. And I think he like maybe sees Freddie as kind of a mark like, Oh, this guy, I can convert him pretty easily. And I think over time we see that he can't. And we see that like he, um, I think we see Dodd getting frustrated about that. And, at a certain point in the movie, it goes from Dodd really wants Freddie to need him, mm-hmm. and Freddie doesn't. Like Freddie never at any point like needs Dodd. Like at wow. any point in the movie, even when Freddie's like beating people up for Dodd, um, I feel like you could transport Freddie. Like he could be taken out of this situation and put on the other side of the world with completely different people. And after like an hour, he would never think about Dodd or any of those people again. You know what I mean? Like, I love that. I never even thought about that. Yeah. I don't think Freddie, like, I think Freddie's just there because they are giving him things. They're giving, they're giving him a, he has this like community and they're giving him, you know, shelter and stuff like that. And he doesn't care. Like he has nowhere else to go. Like he doesn't care where he is. And I think yeah. Dodd is like annoyed that he can't get Freddie to really um, convert. And I think we see a sort of change where Dodd starts to need Freddie. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, for sure. I, I, I think there's a moment, anyways, where Freddie is at least trying to make that his home. 
like be really be a part of it. Like, cause you see when they go later, when they end up in that house in Laura Dern's house, the daughter comes on to Freddie, like tries to like yeah. grab him and he doesn't pursue it. He like shuts it down. And to me, that was like a, I don't know if that was a test, if that was all planned, but I know that like Freddie seems at least in that, like he's trying to do the right thing. Like he's like, he's, Maybe it's self-serving still, but it's like he's definitely trying to not just go f- anything that moves or like he's be on his best behavior, basically. So I don't know. I, I, I just I guess I just don't know, because I think that at the end, you're right. Like the way this plays out, he 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 can't fully ever commit to this thing, the cause because he's too self-serving. He's too, he's also too like, and for lack of a better word, stupid. Like, I think that's another thing that Dodd can't quite crack is that he can manipulate people who are smart. He can manipulate people who have like, who aren't just animals, but Freddie's just an animal. So it's Mm -hmm. hard to get him to do what you want him to do because like, like in the case of like, you mentioned like him beating up those people for Dodd, right? Like, Freddy at one point goes and takes a crew over and just beats the crap out of somebody who just, like, calls out Dodd in a party. Uh, that's, like, Freddy, like, just being an animal. Like, he just, like, thinks, like... Like, like I, I think about my dog, Lily. Like, Lily mm-hmm. barks at every dog that we that we walk past because Lily's trying to protect me from the dog, even though she mm-hmm. has no idea that that dog is poses no threat to us at all. So it's, like... I think about that and it's annoying to me. And that's how I felt about Dodd in that scene where he's like, what did you do? What did you do? Yeah. You're an animal. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so I think, I think you're ultimately right, but I do think that this movie, part of what it might be about then in that case is, is the relationship between like the master and an apprentice, like the relationship of like, how do you get people to follow you? are there types of people who can't, who just can't ever commit to ideologies like this for whatever reason, you know? And I do think you're right. Ultimately Dodd seems to need Freddie in a weirder way than Freddie might need Dodd. Yeah. Like Dodd is so pathetic at the end of this when he's, you know, he gets Freddie to come out there and, and sings um, to him. (laughs) Yeah. It's just really like, yeah, he sings. He sings the uh, 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 is the slow boat to China, mm-hmm. um, which was what was the significance of that? Was it he sang to uh, he sang that to um, Doris or whatever? Or Doris sang that to him? Yes, maybe. the other way around. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, so I don't and, know. Yeah, and and what's and. I wonder if he knows that or if that's another illustration of them connecting like mm. from a past life, like that they are maybe the same or they're tethered in some sort of way to each other because there is something about them. Like, again, I, I keep going back to the whole life we met before in a past life or in the past. And I'm just thinking like what th- that has something to do with this. Like they, they are, they are bound in some sort of, some sort of way or Freddie seems to be like the missing part of Dodd. Um, that even Amy Adams, who seems to be very much like has Dodd wrapped around her finger, 
uh, even she can't really come between them. So it's it's, it's this movie is again like like we kind of set up top. This movie is interesting, but also it's very esoteric. Like it's very, I wouldn't necessarily call it avant garde, but it is like this. It, this shit is not clear. Yeah. So th- there are no way there are no clear answers here. <laughs> uh Freddie travels with Dodd's family as they spread the teachings of the cause along the East Coast. At a dinner party in New York, a man questions Dodd's methods and statements and accuses the movement of being a cult. Uh Dodd loses his temper, calling the man Pig F. <laughs> And asks him to leave. Freddy uh, pursues the man to his apartment and assaults him that night to Dodd's dismay. There was some guy, the guy who, it's not this guy. It's it's uh, not this guy that Freddy beats up, but um, I think Freddy might beat him up later on. There's the, you know, you know the uh, imposter uh, brother guy from There Will Be Blood, right? That actor, yeah. mm-hmm. he's in this movie. Yeah. Also, the uh, the guy that um, that tries to buy out Daniel Day Lewis in There Will Be Blood plays a cop later on in the movie. Oh, yeah. The guy who's Got sitting it. at the table when Daniel Day Lewis is drunk and like talking about how he he went with Standard Oil or whatever instead of mm. whatever. Yeah, the blonde guy. Anyways, right? Yeah. Uh, other members of the cause begin to worry about Freddy's behavior. Freddy criticizes Dodd's son, Val, for disregarding his father's teaching. Uh, but Val tells Freddy Dodd is making things up as he goes along. Dodd is arrested for practicing medicine without improper, without proper qualifications after one of his former hostesses has a change of heart. Uh, Freddy attacks the police officers and is also arrested. Uh, in jail, uh, this is where we see him break a toilet. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Freddie has an angry tirade questioning everything that Dodd has taught him and accusing him of being a fake. Dodd calls Freddie lazy and worthless and claims nobody likes him except for Dodd. Which uh, is weird, they, right? That's like a weird... Because yeah. he's also... Oh. he's He is right. Like, Dodd is... That's the truth. But I don't know why he keeps saying that. Is he just mad at Freddie in this scene? Yeah, I this is like a childish argument yeah. where like I want to express to you that I'm like angry at you and make you feel bad, but yes. also secretly deep down I like need you to still be my friend kind of a thing. Um yeah. so the they reconcile upon their release, but uh members of the cause have become more suspicious and fearful of Freddie believing him to be deranged or an undercover agent or simply uh, beyond their help. Uh, Dodd insists that Freddy's behavior can be corrected with more rigorous and repetitive conditioning, which Freddy finds difficult to internalize. That's a good way of putting it, actually. Whoever wrote yeah. this Wikipedia article, I think, is has a pretty clear understanding of some of the facets of this movie. Because, yeah, I think that's... Because I, I think that is great. Like, I think d- part of Dodd's thing is the ego. Like, he doesn't really want to let Freddy go on some level because he hasn't fixed Freddy. And he feels like he's fixing all these people. So he wants to be able to succeed. It's almost like proving his own bullshit is true. If he can, like, actually, you know, contain Freddy. Uh, and I love that just that phrase, Freddy finds it difficult to internalize. Because he's not a deep guy. <laughs> 
you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Freddie accompanies Dodd to Phoenix to celebrate the release of Dodd's latest book. When Dodd, uh, Dodd's publisher criticizes the quality of the book and its teachings, Freddie assaults him. Helen Sullivan, a previously acquiescent acolyte, uh, causes Dodd to lose his temper after she questions some details of the book. Dodd takes Freddie to a salt flat with his motorcycle, telling him to pick a point in the distance and drive toward it as fast as he can. Freddie drives off and disappears. Um, uh, that scene with this. Laura Dern is like pretty interesting. And I think that is that to me seems like something that is actually was directly pulled from Scientology directly. I, cause I do think that was the journey that they took where for a long time it was, can you recall? And, right. and now the, and the phrasing changed to, can you imagine? Which is so different. It's such right. a different question and it's such a different, the results are so different for something you can imagine versus an actual memory you could recall. Yeah, and Dodd is so frustrated that people notice this. Yes. Um, yeah. Freddie returns home to Lynn, Massachusetts to rekindle uh, his relationship with Doris, but learns from Doris's mother that she has married and started a family since he last saw her. This is pretty uncomfortable. Uh, he tells her mother he is glad she is happy. Uh, while sleeping in a movie theater, Freddie receives a phone call. Hey, remember sleeping in movie theaters? Yeah, I do remember that. When my old lady every, would every kick hour, me to the curb. <laughs> yeah, every night, eight hours a night, we'd all hunker down in a movie theater together and go to sleep. Yeah, uh, turn on Event Horizon and <laughs> <laughs> slumber away. Yeah, sleep uh, Freddie receives a phone call from Dodd, who is now residing in England and begging Freddie to visit. Upon arriving, Freddie finds. Uh, the cause to have grown even larger and Dodd seemingly bent to the will of his wife. Not expecting Freddy to stay with him, uh, Dodd requests that if Freddy can find a way to live without a master, any master, then he is to let the rest of us know because he will be the first person in history to do so. Um, Dodd then recounts that in a past life, they had worked in Paris to send balloons across a blockade created by Prussian forces. Dodd gives him an ultimatum, stay with the cause and devote himself to it for the rest of his life or leave and never return. As Freddy suggests that they may meet again in the next life, Dodd claims that if they do, it will be as sworn enemies. Dodd begins singing Slow Boat to China as Freddy begins to cry. Freddy leaves, picks up a, uh, a woman at a local pub, then repeats uh, questions from his first processing session with Dodd. As he is having sex with her on a beach, Freddy curls up next to a crude and sand sculpture of a woman he and his Navy comrades had sculpted during the war. Uh, so, Jeremy, <laughs> oh, wait, wait, did you like this movie or what? What do you think? It's think it's yeah, pretty good. Yeah, I, I I love it, and I think the central theme of of the master, right? Like that mm. that that point they really hit home towards the end, kind of really puts the whole thing into perspective for me anyway, where it's like, yeah, like Dodd's master is his wife and he's very much under her thumb, which I think is an interesting kind of facet to the whole thing is that, and, and, and that's right. That's correct. By the way, 
Like we all do serve a master. And uh, perhaps Freddy might actually be the only person in history <laughs> to not be not to live without a master, to not be able to serve a master. Um, he seems to be very anti-authority, very unable to like really be uh, held in any kind sort of community <laughs> or a part of any kind of real community. Um. Yeah, I I'm obsessed with this movie. I think this movie is great. I think uh, you know, it's it's definitely not overrated. The hype is real for the master, and I think I think that uh, yeah, this is this is still like um, you know, for me, it's just it, it lives just under there will be blood. Uh, I'm gonna give it three point seven five Chucky freckles, which is what I gave Punch Drunk Love. Love it. I think for me. This and Punch Drunk hovered about the same, the same area, you know. Like I think they're they're very similar. Uh, I feel very. I feel like uh, I like them, like them about the same, same amount, which is almost perfect films in my in my mind. Um, yeah. What about you? What, what would you think? Uh, not a fan. Not a fan of this movie. Uh, no, I, uh, yeah, I like, I echo everything that you say. I, again, it's, it's, you know, um, it's a film that like challenges me mentally, but it's also going back to like, uh, what I was saying earlier about interpreting films and, um, just kind of letting them, uh, wash over you and, 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 uh, you know, sometimes it's more about, the feeling, you know, uh, to me, this, this, this is, uh, this is a movie that is simply a very, uh, just fascinating, uh, 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 story about, about a relationship between, like you were saying, someone who basically it thinks that they are a God of some kind and someone, uh, a master and then, and someone who, um, doesn't need a master at all in any in any way and and sort of to me this is almost more of dot like dodd's story than freddy's because i i think we we i think we see dodd transform more than freddy and i think that it really frustrates dodd that he can't really he can change freddy to an extent but ultimately freddy doesn't need what dodd is dishing out Um, and I, I, I just think that Dodd's character is just so it's, it's really fascinating to just see just how like sad, like pathetic he gets at a certain point and, and to see things just that, just to see this like, uh, person come into his life that, that just really like, uh, shakes him to his core and, 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 uh, yeah, I don't know. So I, I give this movie, uh, I want to give it a four, but I feel like you're probably right for me. It's maybe like a 3.75. I can't that I can't necessarily think of a way that it could be improved, but you're right. I don't think it's quite as, uh, it's, it's not quite, there will be blood level for me. 
Maybe yeah. it's the story. Maybe it is the story. The fact that it is kind of just like, um, you know, it's not like a character study necessarily. I, I feel like I say character study when I mean just a story that like is sort of not structured uh, in like a normal. It's about a character way. instead of a story or like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, this to me is more like a relationship study almost like the relationship between two characters. Totally. Um, and I, and I, and I think that there'll be blood for me. I think what this movie might be missing and not, not to like, not, not to be too critical. Cause I don't, I don't have a lot of negative things to say about it, but for me, it's missing like that big scene. Like yeah. that big You're moment right. of like something happening and it feeling really important and cool. It has attempts at those. Like I think the first processing scene is a is a scene that haunts me. I'll always think about it. And I think him singing to him at the end is a really good scene. There's a lot of great scenes, but there's no I'm going to drink your milkshake scene. There's no right. uh, the tower of uh, oil explodes. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, there's no, um, there's no. I've abandoned my boy. Like those to me are the scenes that put there'll be blood into the four category. So, so Jeremy, next week uh, we're talking. I think Death Race, <laughs> which yeah. is. Uh, Jason Statham. Jason Statham, Paul W.S. Anderson uh, picture. And I'm looking forward so, to this. This might be good. Um, Jeremy, I think, well, you know what? I hope it's good. I hope we get a good one. Uh, but we'll see. I, I mean, it, you know, it doesn't, it, the premise is, sounds all right. Statham's okay, I guess. Um, yeah, he's okay. But we'll see. Uh, sign up for that Patreon, patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. Jeremy, anything you want to plug before we sign off? Absolutely not. Well, in that case, Norma, I'll see you in my dreams. Mm-hmm.